I am so glad you chose to join us today. I think God has something very special in store for us. If you don't know me, my name is Pastor Keith Stewart. I'm the founding pastor of Spring Creek Church. Been here for 30 years now and love every minute of it. You know, we've been doing this series called Where is God in All This? And when we started it, we began with an intention of, of kind of dealing with just so much of the devastation around COVID. Uh, the deaths that have happened, so many hospitalizations, uh, so many losses of business and, and opportunity and hopes and dreams. And we just wanted to speak into pain the way God's word speaks into pain. But as you're acutely aware, our nation right now is hemorrhaging. And because it is hemorrhaging around the unjustified killing of this man, George Floyd, it's taken us in a new direction today. Uh, I have to tell you, I must confess, I, I, I've not prayed about a message as much as I prayed about this message today. And uh, I really believe um, that this is what God would have us spend some time just letting his word saturate us and think about and, and, and be provoked in our comfort and um, hear his heart once again. So if you would, just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, I just ask right now that you would have complete freedom in this moment to speak to us all where we are with what we need. Lord, there's so much truth in your word around all these things that society is hemorrhaging over. And as your people, we, we want to come not with a perspective from the right or the left, from a perspective that reflects your heart. So God, as best I'm able today, help me to communicate your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it was around the sixth century before Christ, a prophet by the name of Jeremiah was called by God to the people of Israel in the state of Judah that there were problems that were brewing in that country that if they did not turn it around, an enemy force, a foreign invader, would come in and overrun the people. Now, what added to the problem was that there were all sorts of spiritual types that were running around the country telling everybody that everything was going to be fine when it wasn't. Jeremiah addresses this right up front in his book in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. He says, prophets and priests alike, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Now, Jeremiah is saying to proclaim peace when there's an absence of peace is kind of like slapping a Band-Aid onto cancer. You know, as a people, we really haven't changed all that much since the time of Jeremiah. We still want that reassurance that everything's going to be fine, that in time this too shall pass, that I can get back to my life and the way things used to be and I can put all these troubles out of my mind. But tell me something, who's the real friend? The person who comes and tells you the truth even when the tr truth is painful but they do so in love? Or the person who tells you peace, peace, that everything's going to be fine when everything is not fine? To me, it's the person who speaks the truth, but speaks it in love. Now, this word peace is a very important piece in the Bible. It's, 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 it's this word shalom, and 
what the theological word book of the, uh, the New Old Testament says is shalom is one of the most important theological words in the Old Testament. Shalom occurs 250 times in 213 separate verses. Now, shalom is a very rich word, and it means a whole lot more than just a feeling of peace. It's about wholeness. It's about completeness. It's about harmony. But principally, what's primary about shalom is this sense of universal flourishing. Now, if you read the Bible and you see the word peace, a lot of us, what we do, because we're such an individualized, oriented country, we turn this word into my personal peace. I want shalom for me. But that is not the way the Bible uses the word shalom at all. Shalom is about all of us. It's about society. It's about a society where everybody has an equal opportunity to flourish. So how can we say peace, peace, when society is hemorrhaging? How is peace, that is universal flourishing, even possible when one segment of society is treated vastly different from the others? That's not universal flourishing, that's selective flourishing. We want peace, but we don't want peace the way God defines it. Instead, what we're really saying is we want to preserve the status quo. I want my peace, even if that peace comes at the expense of our collective peace. I like it better when your problems don't affect me. I mean, let's face it. I, I mean, I like it when I can go on Facebook and I can post pictures of my grandchildren and my dog and funny things, not be reminded of how my country's a powder keg that's just exploded and it's left its carnage in every major city across America. I'm sure you've seen the signs, as I have too. Many of them say, no justice, no peace. I hope you also realize as a follower of Christ that that's a biblical concept. Because over and over again in the pages of the Bible, we're reminded that the reason this world lacks peace is because it lacks justice. Peace and justice live in symbiotic relationship with one another. You will not find one and not find the other. And if you find the absence of justice, you will see there's no peace. And this is what's at the heart of Jeremiah's message to the people of his day. There were false prophets who were proclaiming peace, wanting unity at all costs. They wanted peace, but there was no shalom. There was no shalom because there was no justice. And what stood in the place of justice? Oppression. Listen to Jeremiah's message. He explained in chapter 5, verse 28. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper, and they do not defend the rights of the needy. Or how about chapter 6, verse 6? This is the city which must be punished. There's nothing but oppression within her. Or chapter 9, verse 6. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Oppression and shalom are polar opposites. Oppression is the absence of shalom because oppression is about the presence of injustice. Oppression, what is that? I mean, it's a word we throw around a lot, but what exactly is oppression? Well, oppression occurs when people in a power or authority misuse that power and authority to crush, humiliate, animalize, impoverish, enslave, or kill persons created in the image of God. Now, everybody wants peace. We want someone to assure us that we can get back to the way things used to be. But what if the way things used to be was not shalom? 
What if we've only been fooling ourselves that everything was right in this country because the real problems in this country were not affecting us personally? What if collectively as a people, we've been turning our backs on God's dream for shalom because we've neglected the important work of working for justice? To those in power and to those who benefit from power, Jeremiah says, don't tell me about peace. What peace? You have no respect for human life. There's a deep, gaping wound in society, but you're busy looking at others and telling them, shh, don't make a big deal of this. It's not that important. It'll blow over in time. It doesn't affect us. It's just a distraction. That's not an honest peace. So Jeremiah says, don't whisper peace to people who've been wounded. There is no peace without justice. Don't pretend to be empathetic to vulnerable ones when you're just really seeking a return to the status quo. So let me begin this message by talking to you about this intimate connection between shalom and justice. Now, I believe with all of my heart, the more important something is to God, the more plain, the more simple, the more succinct he makes it. The more he wants you to understand something, to really get something and apply it to your life, the more bold and courageous and truthful and honest and underscored that truth is in the Bible. One time, the writer Ernest Hemingway was asked about his writing process, and he said this. He said, all you have to do is write one true sentence. And what Hemingway was saying is after you write one true sentence, then literally everything else would flow out of that one true sentence. There's a great example of a one true sentence in the Bible, and it's Micah 6, 8. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's the sentence. To act justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. It's just 14 words. That's all God wants from us. It's simple. It's profound. You could fit it into a tweet. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly, that's what is of utmost importance to God. It's what Jesus taught us too. Jesus called it the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. He said, you and I should never neglect to practice them. But for my purposes today, I just want to clarify what it means to act justly. You see, biblical justice is about the need to reorder our world to set it right because this world has been infected and affected by sin. Amen? I mean, I can't hear you at home, but I'm hoping you're agreeing with that. Jesus came to redeem us, this planet, and the systems of this world that have been infected by sin. But you should know right up front, biblical justice is very different from criminal justice. Biblical justice is about setting the world right, the way God meant it to be. But that doesn't always happen with criminal justice, does it? Just because you get justice in a court of law doesn't mean that the system's been set right. If you have a consistent pattern of injustice happening to a segment of society, just because they get their day in court and just because the court finds in their favor, that doesn't satisfy the demands of biblical justice. Because criminal is punished, that doesn't mean that everything's been set right. Why? Because this idea of mishpat, of biblical justice, is restoration, not retribution. God is not seeking revenge. God wants to repair what is broken. 
He wants to set right the conditions that led to the crime in the first place. God's justice is about concern about what caused the injustice. So if your only association with justice is about catching criminals, putting them in jail, and seeing the innocent set free, then not only is your idea of justice incredibly limited and shallow, it is not biblical justice. In the Bible, justice has a lot less to do with the conviction of the guilty and more to do with the care of the vulnerable and correction of systems of injustice. That's because God wants to see all members of society flourish, to experience shalom. The biblical idea of justice is about fairness. If a society is just, it treats all of its citizens fairly. This is why the civil rights movement was considered a struggle for justice, because blacks were being denied the right to vote, the right to eat in public restaurants, the right, the, they were denied the right of public uh, lodging, and the right to attend public schools. When we treat one segment of society differently than the rest, that's a social injustice. Now, in the scripture, there are nine separate words associated with justice. You know what they are? Here they are. Widow, fatherless, orphans, poor, hungry, stranger, needy, weak, and oppressed. This is pretty much a list of the people who are most taken advantage of by society. So when God defines justice, his starting point, his foundation, where he lays the matter of justice squarely at our hearts, it's centered on vulnerable people. Over and over again, God tells us in scripture that society will be judged by how it treats the most vulnerable. In addition, that no nation will ever be considered righteous who neglects the widow, the father, the orphan, the poor, the hungry, the stranger, the needy, the weak, or the oppressed. So when God tells us to act justly, Jesus reiterates that command in the New Testament, and what he's telling us all is we're to be champions of fairness. If the, if the governance or the government, governmental body is unfair in its laws or the application of its laws, if businesses target or, or unfairly exploit the needy, if society has organized itself in such a way that a group of benefits more than another group, then our calling, if we're acting justly, is to stand with the vulnerable against those who take advantage of them. So when the Bible tells us to act justly, it's saying that the mandate for the people of God is to take action and change the system. From the prophets all the way to Jesus, there's a command to confront powers that are failing to deliver compassion for the poor and justice to the oppressed. Bottom line, we cannot remain silent when one person's well-being, when their shalom, is gained at the expense of another. And so it leads me to this. We've reached a tipping point. You know, a good number of years ago now, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Tipping Point. And that book was exploring this idea how that one thing, often a seemingly insignificant thing or small thing, can create a kind of watershed moment that causes an idea to cross a threshold and it spreads like wildfire. It's like a match to gasoline. Now, the metaphor he uses throughout the book is the spread of a virus. Since we're presently living in a time of quarantine, it seems all the more appropriate. 
what started out on the other side of the world in China, because it was not contained there, because there were massive cover-ups about what was really going on, and because people traveled from that part of the world to other parts of the world, and because we are so intimately connected as a global community these days, that one tiny virus has already cost the world more than 380,000 lives and has devastated the global economy. But it's not just coronavirus that spreads in this way. Sometimes in society, something happens like a matchstick to gasoline. All the conditions are primed for an outbreak and all it takes is one incident and it explodes. I believe George Floyd's killing was a matchstick because it was recorded, because people all around the world watched as a police officer literally strangled the life out of a man pinned to the ground. His death struck the match that lit the powder keg. His killing, I have to admit, is one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in all my life. It was heinous. It was evil, and it was heartbreaking, and it was a tipping point. And I have to confess, this has troubled me, like few things have troubled me in years. I've wrestled with this. I've prayed about it. I've lost sleep all week. Beyond the troubling factors surrounding George Floyd's death, it's caused me to do some real soul searching. Like why has George Floyd's death troubled me so much? when I haven't felt the same intensity over the many other black lives lost in this decade? Why didn't the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and Michael Brown and Sandra Bland, why didn't they affect me in the same way? Is it only because I saw his death with my own eyes? And if that's true, what does that say about me? How can I hear name after name over the past 10 years and have gone on with my life comfortably because it didn't affect me personally. Am I too comfortable? Is my heart too hard? Have I lost my prophetic voice? Am I afraid of losing my position as pastor or the church? Have I lost my heart for God? Does my heart not break for the things that break the heart of God? All these things have struck a nerve deep in my soul. And I know there's a part of me that wants to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that bothers me even more. I'm the one in the wrong. I'm sorry, I've not led well. I've allowed my personal comfort to be too important to me. I've been silent when I should have spoken. I sent the wrong message to my black brothers and sisters about where my heart is. I have to tell you, I was wrong and I'm sorry. So church, I'm asking you first, please forgive me. And for my black brothers and sisters, please forgive me. And for the community that looks to me as a leader, please forgive me. And for the people that are crying out who are oppressed, please forgive me.
And if you want my resignation over any or all of this, I promise you I'll gladly tender it at the close of this message today. Martin Luther said, if you preach the gospel in all aspects with the exception of the issues which deal specifically with your time, you're not preaching the gospel at all. That too is another knife to my heart. The gospel is good news to the oppressed. The message most needed for this hour is found in the pages of God's word. The flourishing that God longs to see happen for all people is something he's already spelled out. He told us, you do the hard work of justice, you know peace. But for shalom to become a reality, justice must come first. You know, this past year, the LA Times had a cover story. The headline said, getting shot by police is a leading cause of death for US black men and boys. According to this article, one in a thousand men, black men and boys in America, can expect to die at the hands of a police officer. That makes blacks two and a half times more likely than whites to die during an encounter with the police. Justin Feldman, who's with NYU School of Medicine, he said the United States is unique among wealthy democracies in terms of the number of people that are killed by its police forces. Now I know that many of you have social media feeds like I do and it's been filled up in the past days with Arguments, thoughts, opinions around the death of George Floyd, Black Lives Matters, protests, riots, and law enforcement. Personally, I felt the evidence against this officer was overwhelming. I think it was perfectly appropriate that the man be charged with murder as he has been. I also know the first pushback among many people I have seen has been that not all cops are bad. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, here at Spring Creek, we have nearly a dozen officers, black, white, and Latino. I have friends, deep friendships with several of them. I love them. I respect them. I think the world of them. So I personally know a lot of good cops, but I readily acknowledge that there are bad cops too. And bad cops need to pay for their crimes, and they need to be out of the profession. But even as I say that, I'm acutely aware that this problem goes beyond just a few bad eggs. Just this past week, I'm, I've watched, as I'm sure you have watched, dozens of videos of police officers responding to protests about police brutality with police brutality. Now, I'm not talking about violence or wanton destruction, which I think we can all agree is wrong, should never happen. I think that I'm, what I'm talking about is police officers interacting with peaceful demonstrators, exercising their First Amendment rights. This past week, when the FBI asked for video evidence of people perpetuating violence in hopes of getting identity of people who were looting and vandalizing and destroying business and causing untold suffering and loss of life, they were instead inundated by videos of officers instigating violence against nonviolent protesters. At the same time, we've seen officers who've laid down their riot shields, who've taken a knee, who've marched alongside protesters and shown solidarity with their cause. Two vastly different images, two vastly different outcomes. When unarmed black men and women continue to die at the hands of police officers at the rate and level it seems to be happening in this country, 
it is past time to ask some tough questions and really look at some real reform. Now, I'm not going to pretend for a minute that I know all the answers, because I don't. I'm sure I don't even understand all the questions involved. But I think we have to look at how officers are recruited and how they're trained. I think we have to take a really hard look about the level of military surplus flowing into municipalities across this nation. For years, we've always drawn a line between the military and the police force. It's never good to blur that line. In fact, years ago, and I mean years ago, the actor William Adama said something that stayed with me. I saved it, I kept it, because it really hit a chord deep inside. He said, there's a reason you separate the military and the police. One fights the enemies of the state, the other serves and protects the people. When the military becomes both, then the enemies of the state tend to become the people. As a society, it should always trouble us when there are extrajudicial killings. That is a punishment for a crime without due process. When an individual becomes judge, jury, and executioner, that should only happen in those cases where lives are truly at risk. That it happens so often in cases not like that should trouble us all. In terms of accountability, there are so many people, especially within the black community, raising an alarm over how many officers are cleared by internal investigations with no external oversight. You know, as a church, we owe money. We've owed money for some time. And because we owe money to banks, guess what? Banks insist on an independent external audit of our books practically every year. We don't push back on that. We understand why they're asking that. They want to make sure that they're not, we're not running a scam, that we're honoring our budget, that money is being spent the way it's supposed to be spent. They want to make sure that they're going to get the funding that they need for that loan that we took out. I get it. As a pastor, as an individual, I have always sought outside accountability. People outside the church, I have a spiritual director. I've had her for 25 years. She has absolute uh, authority in my life in terms of me being accountable to her. She can speak into my life. She can correct me when I'm wrong. I know I need that. I don't need that from my peers. I don't need that from people who serve under me. I need that outside of this organization. Everyone needs outside accountability, and that's especially true of law enforcement when you consider the magnitude of the responsibilities they face in terms of life and death decisions. Officers also need to be supported. They need support with regular mental health care professionals. You know, some of my friends on the force have told me stories, stories about having to go to places where you and I would never have to go, like into a home in the immediate aftermath of a suicide or where a spouse has killed another spouse and sometimes where a parent has killed a child. And they go into a situation like that and they're met with an image that is absolutely impossible to erase out of your mind and they have to go through the rest of their day and back home to their husbands and wives and deal with that junk that's in their soul. Officers need a regular outlet. It's good for them to have long-term care for the kind of things that they face because they face incredible pressure. It's a tough job and one that I don't envy. Several of our pastors have gone to the Garland Police Academy, the Citizens Academy, so that they could understand and better appreciate what our police officers have to endure, what they go through, hear the stories of what's going on in the streets. And like I said, there are many good men and women serving in law 
enforcement. It is a tough and thankless job. They're under fierce scrutiny, but that is the way it should be. You know, it was Jesus who told us, to whom much is given, much will be required. When you've been entrusted with the power of life and death, that's all the more reason to be held to the highest standards. And let me just say this too before I move on to the next point. I see it all over my Facebook feed. As soon as somebody says Black Lives Matter, someone immediately counters with all lives matter. And I get that. It's true. All lives matter. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that statement. It's an absolute truth. But Black Lives Matter, the reason for that tagline, the reason that people are championing that is not to say that Black Lives Matter more than your life or that they're in a special class and they matter more uniquely than you. No one's saying that. I think their message is about as simple and as straightforward as it gets. What they're saying is, is the only lives that we seem to be debating today, whether they matter, are the black ones. And so when they say black lives matter, that's what they mean. Now, I'm no expert on the black experience. I have black friends. I can't speak for any of them. And it's the ultimate in presumption and arrogance for a white person to think that they can. I will never fully understand what they've experienced, what they've endured, how they feel, or have the capacity to speak for any of my friends. But I believe my friends when they tell me what it's like to be black in America. I believe that they're telling me the truth. I believe that they have experiences far different than that of my own as a white man. Most of my friends are leaders like myself. They're pastors, fellow pastors, men of God, who are in our city, who just have a very different experience than I do. I don't believe they're lying to me. I believe they're telling me the truth about what they experience in our country. Which leads me to this final thing. We must face our prejudices. You know, in Los Angeles, there's a, a unique kind of museum. It's called the Museum of Tolerance. Its main purpose is to challenge visitors to confront racism, not just in society, but within themselves, within our own hearts. One of the most interesting features of this museum is before you go inside, before you can actually see any of the exhibits, you have to make a choice. You see, there are two doors into the exhibit. One of them is marked prejudiced, and the other one is marked non-prejudiced. So before you can even go in and see this museum that's dedicated to tolerance, you have to make a decision, am I prejudiced or am I not prejudiced? And when you go to go through the door, if you were to think you're not prejudiced, what you would discover very quickly is that door is always locked. It's locked because the museum wants you to understand that everyone is prejudiced in some way or another to one degree or another. Let's face it. Every one of us at some point in our life has made a judgment about somebody before we knew them. And that's what prejudice is. It's about having a preconceived notion or opinion about people without knowing them. We form judgments just by looking at people. We judge people based on their gender, by how they look, by how they speak, about their education or lack thereof, where they live, the color of their skin. And those preformed judgments, my prejudices, get in the way of really seeing people as they are, of knowing them as they are, and especially loving them as they are. Everybody has experienced prejudice at some point in their life, and everybody's been prejudiced. 
You know, when I meet somebody for the first time and tell them I'm a preacher, man, the assumptions people make. I mean, the, the conversations we have, because I've got to give an account for every bad preacher they've ever known. Or when I was growing up, I never told people I was born in Kentucky because Kentucky's where the hillbillies are from. And not just that, it probably didn't help our reputation for being white trash that we drove around in a literal hearse. You know, I've, I've been fat for most all my life. Did you know that among elementary school children, they have more negative views toward obese children than they do toward bullies, disabled kids, and kids of other races? Now, my dear friend Paula, she's been blind since birth. If she had a dollar for every time she met somebody for the first time who told her how much they liked the music of Ray Charles, she'd be a millionaire by now. Because you know blind people only like the music of other blind people. All of us form these tons of prejudgments, of these opinions that we have without actually knowing people. What we need to do, what we need to do is understand and become conscious of them. Now, even with that said, I'm not saying I had it all that bad. I'm not even beginning to compare and wouldn't compare what I have been through with what people of color have been through in this country. I'm just saying everybody forms prejudgments and to think that you're the exception means you're really good at lying to yourself. Self-righteous people claim to be without prejudice. That denial is as sick as the darkness in a racist heart. Both are blind to their own reality until we acknowledge how easily we operate off of preconceived notions, the more controlled we are by them. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm very concerned for our country. We're being torn about by forces on the right and the left. When people look at the church, we're supposed to be different. We exist to show a world that's hopelessly divided what it means to be united by justice making and justice living. Believers of all nations, of all tribes, of all colors can come together and be God's church. Sadly, the church in America does not embody the alternative. Sometimes we just mirror the divisions of society. So let me tell you a true story. It happens in the pages of the Bible in the book of Acts. The gospel began in Jerusalem, and when it began in Jerusalem, it was a mono-ethnic religion. In other words, it was a Jewish church. But then something happened. The gospel began to break out beyond Jewishness. In fact, it went to a city called Antioch. Antioch was a multi-ethnic city. It was 15 times larger than Jerusalem. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. First was Rome, then came Alexandria, then Antioch. So Antioch was the Chicago of its day. It was an international city. There were Persians there, Indians, Arabs, Chinese, Africans, Greeks, Romans, and Jews. When Antioch was first built, there was a wall built around the entire perimeter of the city to protect it from invaders. What's really strange about Antioch is that there were also walls within the walls. In fact, there were 15 different ethnic quadrants within the city itself. So even though it was a multi-ethnic city, it was a highly segregated city. We call that being ghettoized. Now, Seleucus is the man who founded the city of Antioch. 
And it was his idea to build the walls within the walls to keep violence from erupting between the various ethnic groups that comprised the city. So this kept the races apart. They would never intermix. They would never mingle because they felt like all it would take is one injustice, one bad thing to happen between the races, and the whole city would go up like a powder keg. So Antioch had deep socioeconomic problems, entrenched classism, urban decay, and deep racism. But it was into this multi-ethnic, pluralistic, globalized city that the gospel came. And in this deeply troubled city, Christianity had its best day ever. How'd that happen? Well, Antioch was really the starting place of the revolution of the Christian faith. People of different backgrounds and ethnicities were becoming friends. They were worshiping with each other. Christians were creating a new society that was both just and fair. Vulnerable people were being taken care of. They looked out for one another's interests. They were sharing things with one another. So for the first time in history, a real solution to the problems of race and class existed that Rome in all of its wisdom was not able to solve. In fact, just as to show you how effective this was, one of the last emperors of Rome was a guy named Julian. And Emperor Julian wanted to revive paganism, but utterly failed at it. You know why? He blamed the damnable charity of the Christians. In fact, in a personal letter, he wrote this, the Jews take care of the Jews, the Greeks take care of the Greeks, but the Christians take care of everybody. You see, the reason paganism flopped because there was no revival to bring it back is because Christians provided a much more compelling alternative to paganism. It was caring for one another. It was about creating a society that's truly just and not divided. In fact, it's the reason why in the book of Acts, they had to come up for a new name for the, for the people who were followers of Jesus. Look at this. In Acts chapter 11, Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus Christ. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So get this, up to this point in church history, in the book of Acts, the church was developing along purely ethnic lines. There was a Jewish church in Jerusalem, there was a fledgling church in Samaria among the Samaritans, and there was a church beginning to, to open up uh, with the Gentiles, uh, beginning with Cornelius. And so there's this amazing thing that's happening, but the church is still largely divided. But in Antioch, something different happens. All the races were combining in one church. Now, before Acts chapter 11, it was easy to describe the people who were followers of Christ. They were either converted Jews or converted Samaritans or converted Gentiles. But what do you call a church when Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles are all in the same church, when yellow, brown, red, yellow, black, and white, they're all in the same church, what do you call those people? You call them Christians. You see, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The heritage of the name Christian is to describe the first multi-ethnic church. Because this had never happened before, you couldn't call people by a common tongue, by a shared ethnicity, by the color of their skin. You had to call them what they really were. They were sharers in Jesus Christ. But you see, there are not too many churches like Antioch today, are there? 
Instead, we, we, we settle for what's called tribalism. Tribalism are the people who are most like us. Tribalism reflects back to us what we want to see and hear. Tribalism makes me think that my way of seeing the world is the only right way of seeing the world. Tribalism is what happens when you only watch news from one political perspective. Tribalism is what happens when you only hang out with people most like you. Singles hang out with singles, married with married, people at a certain social status with people at that status or above. When that happens, all we're doing is creating echo chambers so that no one ever contradicts our own narrative. Now hear me saying this, it's not wrong to have friends with whom you share common interests. The problem is when you only have friends like that. For me, it was only when I formed relationships with the poorest of the poor that I began to see how poor I actually was, that there was actually great wealth among the poor. It was only when I began to form close relationships with uh, black men and women and hear their story that I realized that their experience in America is far different than mine. It's only after I began to befriend some Latino pastors and some uh, pastors and friends throughout the Central America and South America that I began to understand what it's like to be treated like an invading force. Now, forming relationships like this will never be easy. It involves conversations with people who are not like you. Sometimes it'll involve questions, criticism, perhaps sometimes even rejection. So let me close with something I think is, is probably at the heart of everything I want to say. Earlier in the, me in the message, I mentioned the book by Malcolm Gladwell, The Tipping Point, and how he based his premise on the fact that great movements spread in the same way epidemics do. They spread like viruses. But Gladwell also talks about why movements don't tip, why they don't spread, why they don't become a worldwide phenomenon. And he talked about the true story of Kitty Genovese. Now, Kitty Genovese was a young woman from Queens who was brutally attacked and stabbed to death on the streets of New York. What made Kitty Genovese's story so infamous is not only was she chased and attacked by an assailant three separate times over the course of a half an hour, but the more sobering reality is that 38 neighbors watched from their windows, heard her scream, and did nothing about it. There were 38 witnesses to the crime. None of them called the police. It was a, it's considered a sociological watershed moment. I mean, study after study was done on what actually happened that fateful night in 1964. People began to say, you know, the city has become ruled by the law of the jungle. People are just cold and callous. They don't even care about others or safety or their protection. But over time, cooler heads began to prevail and they began to study this more intently and they discovered something that's been called the bystander phenomenon. And this is it. The bystander phenomenon is that when people are in a group, responsibility for acting is diffused. In other words, when you're surrounded by other people, we always assume that someone else is going to do something about it. So the moral of the story really is, for Kitty Genovese, the lesson is, not that no one called despite the fact that 38 people heard her screams, but no one called because 38 people heard her screams. Everyone just assumed that someone else would do something about it. So why even mention this story? You saw the killing of George Floyd like I did. You heard him cry out, I can't breathe. You heard him cry out for his mama 
I have no doubt, if you have a heart, that ripped your gut out to watch that. In fact, I really don't think the majority of people listening to me right now feel anything other than something should be done about it. What I fear is what's happened to me. The Kitty Genovese factor. This is important. Someone needs to do something about that. I'm sure somebody is somewhere. And I forget that somebody is me. The world is full of bystanders. You and I have a chance, an opportunity to be a difference maker. I'm not going to be a bystander anymore. I'm going to make my voice heard. Let's pray. Lord, you have humbled me. You've brought me low. I feel totally inadequate to have brought this message today because I failed at it myself. But I bring my humble, contrite heart to you. I pray, Father, for your forgiveness of me. I pray that I will always stand with those people who are near and dear to your heart. I'll always use my voice where it matters. I won't let fear control my life. I believe in the God who made all men and women to matter to you. That you envision a world, that you desire a world that is just, that is fair. A world where everyone has an opportunity to flourish. God, never let us become so complacent, so content in maintaining the status quo and really so easily overlooking the problems of the world because they're not impacting us personally. God, we are one people in your eyes. We are connected more intimately than any of us ever began to realize. Coronavirus has taught us that. Lord, but you taught us that a long time ago. You've made us one. Make us one again. Help us to realize that peace can be had but peace only happens when we work for justice. I pray it in your son's name. Amen. Wow. Powerful, heavy stuff for sure. And I think it's, if there was a time where we needed to stop down and have a conversation after a message and continue talking about it. I think it's this week's message and it's this time. So thank you guys for joining me for this discussion. However difficult it is and may be, I think right off the bat, I do want to make others aware that we're aware that we are three white men and this isn't necessarily our conversation to have, but it's vital for us to step into this conversation. It is impossible for us to speak on behalf of um, what our black brothers and sisters are going through. It's impossible for us to empathize, but I think we as people, we as a church and we as a, as a society are beginning to step in to these uncomfortable spaces and uh, as, 
as much as it's taken for us to get here, I think it's, it's time for us to do that. And so, Keith, thank you for bringing a, a raw message that I think is not only representative of who you are and what you've been through and where you're leading us, but representative of who we are as a people and uh, developing the culture of confession and just being real about this is, this is kind of tricky for us to navigate through. And um, a lot of these things are not things that we are supposed to be saying because we can't speak on behalf of our black brothers and sisters. But uh, there are times and seasons where we need to leverage what we can for this cause. So I wanna start with you guys. What, what makes this conversation so difficult? Why is it so hard for us to talk about this specifically? You know, I, I, I think that, you know, for me, even with this message, you know, what made it difficult is just, before you can even have a conversation like this, you've really got to look at your heart. Um, yeah. And I, I think a lot of us are really afraid to go there, you know, um, that we we have areas where um, we get pretty vested in the status quo, um, in our comfort, in uh, our surroundings, and and all of that. And and you know we'd rather think that we don't have problems because those problems aren't impacting us personally. But um, you know, Scripture teaches another reality that we are intimately connected and what affects my brothers and sisters affects me too. Yes. And ultimately, you know, one of the reasons that God puts that list of nine vulnerable people in society or people groups is because um, ultimately if you neglect them, society goes that direction too. You know, we, we are so tied together. Um, I think it was Dr. King that said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mm -hmm. And and that is just acknowledging the reality of that interconnectivity of the human condition that we're supposed to care for vulnerable people and for the oppressed. Yeah. You know, hearing this question reminds me of um, a couple years ago when I was interviewing at different churches for different jobs. And I always heard so many churches say two things. They said, number one, we all, we, we want to reach people who aren't saved. We want to reach people who have never heard the gospel or who have never believed in Jesus. And we want to bring the unchurched in. Um, and every church said that until it actually came time to do that. And then hardly any churches wanted to do that. A lot of churches would also say, Hey, we want to change. We want to get younger. We want to, we want to change this about about where we're going. And every church says they want change until it actually comes time to change. And so I think it's the same thing with this, is everybody wants justice until it actually, we see what it takes to get justice. And then a lot of people start shying back because they realize that's not what, I, I wanted the magic button to press and everything would, everything would be okay. Yeah. And there's not gonna be any magic button, which means there's gonna be a lot of dedication uh, and a lot of heart behind whatever it takes to change. And I think the more we realize that, the harder it gets to have that conversation. Yeah, change is hard. And talking about change is admitting that change may need to come, and that's difficult. I think no one's really modeled for us how to have these conversations. 
Our, our parents, grandparents, the, our forefathers haven't shown us what it looks like to truly lean in and have hard conversations about our differences and the systems that have been built that may highlight differences and oppress others. So we're in some ways teaching our neighbors and teaching our children and our grandchildren how to have these conversations. And I think talking about it will bring about change. It should. Uh, I'm not just talking about it won't, but talking about it can lead us into action. And so uh, I, I think it's it's good for us to be talking about it. For us three, for us as a church, for us as a society, um, let's let's talk about it honestly and, and admit that racism is a sin. Let's talk about how each side and each person may be feeling and why they may be feeling that way. But at the end of the day, let's be honest. And we know that, I mean, we all want peace. We all want that shalom that that you mentioned in your message, but shalom is is something that we crave and we kind of identify it a little bit differently. We define, well, this is peace for me would be this. But to get to that shalom, the first step is justice. Mm-hmm. What does that justice look like? And what does that peace we're craving look like? Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, they do exist together, peace and justice. And um, I was sharing with Patrick earlier that you know, in my Facebook feed, I guess because I'm a preacher, I get all these advertisements for preachers, and and uh, a lot of them are advertising sermons about peace because they're they're marketing those to all kinds of evangelical churches across the country. Um, and when I see that, I I think you know I've seen those sermons before, and they're all about you know kumbaya, let's all get together, let's all get along you know, the old Rodney King, can't we all get along kind of uh, appeal. Um, but people are understanding today and, and maybe even returning back to what God said originally, that you cannot have peace without justice, that, that God has tied that sense of peace, which is universal flourishing, to the fact that society is just so that everyone has a chance to flourish. And in the absence of that, um, there's not going to be peace. So I can understand why some of my pastor friends have said to me at times, you know, don't preach peace if you're not going to preach justice because that has to take place. And then the hard work of justice is just, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's complex. And, and it means having courageous conversations with people uh, on Monday, I've been invited to all places to a tattoo studio to have a conversation with police officers and some community leaders about all these things that I was talking about in the message. And I'm going to listen more than I'm going to say anything. I'm, I'm going to hear what people are saying so I can better understand the needs because, you know, I, I was honored to be asked, but but where I'm Feeling how I'm feeling right now, I, I just feel like you know right now I just need to, I need to listen and learn a lot more than I need to talk. Hmm. That's true. You know, I, I think it's an interesting question of which I per, personally, um, you know, I've I've walked into this situation with an open mind, and it's something that I'm constantly either bringing in data and analyzing it to find where's the truth in all of it. And I don't know that I have the best answer, but I, I like what you said, that the Bible defines injustice 
in nine different areas. And if you were to ask me to rattle them off right now, I wouldn't be able to do it. But I'm interested to go back through those notes and look at those nine areas of injustice and find, you know, similar to what you said at the very end, like how can little old me play a part in being able to provide justice to the fatherless, to the orphans, um, to somebody who hasn't been able to hear their voice. And, you know, and I think in all this season, the the one thing that I do hold on to is in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Which, like, if you take anything else, I'll take that promise of Jesus over any sort of, you know, pipe dream that somebody can sell me and just know whoever is thirsting for it if you trust in Jesus, you will be filled by that, that thirst. Yeah. Amen. I think justice is what Jesus came for. It's this, there's something wrong. It needs to be fixed. And that's true justice. And that's the, the road toward peace is recognizing this is wrong. It should be fixed. And as you think through that list of the nine, the widowless, the fatherless, the, the hungry, the poor, the oppressed, the lonely, those, those aren't all just black people. And so a lot of people would say, well, well, it should be everyone. We should be correcting justice for everyone. But if we look at the real numbers and the real history of the world we live in, we can see there is this ongoing threat of oppression, this ongoing threat of not having their voice heard or represented. And I think justice is doing what we can to make that right, to fix that. And the, the church gets to lead out in that. We get to put our feet to the pavement and have those conversations so long as we're willing, and I think we, we are willing for sure. And I don't want to speak for the whole church, but I think we should be willing if we recognize the gospel is that Jesus corrected what was wrong, that we couldn't, we couldn't satisfy God's anger. We couldn't pay for our own sins enough, but Jesus did all that, and we recognize that justice, and how can we love with his love? So now that we're saying, let's, let's have this conversation, let's step into this space— now what? How do we battle this tribalism? What does it look like to really say, we want to do this, what do we do? You know, I mean, it's a really good question because we, we could talk something to death and we could analyze something to death, but there needs to be an actionable kind of response. We don't want to be bystanders in life. We don't want to assume because everybody has heard somebody's going to do something and forget that somebody is me. Uh, so one of the first steps I think anybody and everybody should take is to be intentional in forming a relationship with somebody who is absolutely unlike you. Um, that, that those relationships, that having those conversations, that getting to know one another as men and women, um, to, to, to get inside somebody else's story, to hear what life has been like for them. Um, again, I, I can't speak for somebody else. I can't, I'm, I'm, that would be so presumptive of me to, th- to think that I could speak for my black friends. But I don't need to speak for them, you know? Somebody once said, there's no voiceless people, just people who are not being heard. And everybody's got a voice, but are we tuning into those voices? Are we listening to the people that are in our life. And sometimes it's just as easy as going up and say, hey, uh, would you like to go to Starbucks sometime? Hey, you know, can I take you to lunch? Or could we go do lunch sometime? Or 
hanging out with somebody in a break room or whatever that might be, but to intentionally cultivate a relationship with somebody that is not like you, to overcome that gravitational pull of tribalism that always wants to get around people who only think like us and reflect back to us, sometimes even the distortions in our own thinking. Yeah, I'd, I would just add right to that. I think exactly what you said, taking the next step is to be in community with other people, like you said, who are very different than you. Um, I th- I, I'm a firm believer that the first community that we should be a part of and engaging with is the community of the church. And so if somebody really wants to find out what's next, to be a part of that community and whatever it looks like, uh, whether it be a small group or a serve team, I don't say that just because a pastor to give a plug. I say that because it changes your perspective of other people and yourself. And I say that for the, the sheer simple fact that I've been in church my entire life, and I've never really been a part of a small group until this church. Mm. I've been a small group pastor, and I still wasn't. <laughs> I, I didn't like small groups. My wife and I are part of a small group that is very different than us, and it would be really easy for me to run away and find a whole bunch of people that think and act and love the same things that I do and feel like I fit right in, and instead we show up every single Tuesday and not know where the conversation's gonna go and whether I'm gonna walk away thinking, wow, that was really great or wow, that was really challenging. And I think that's part of growth is be able to walk away with both of those mm-hmm. within a context of a spiritual community and be okay with that. Yeah, I think it changes the conversation from I'm talking about those people over there when you actually go be with those people over there. When you're, the, those people are now part of you and you are part of them and the conversation changes immensely. And so we have a call to do that. We have an opportunity to have real assessments and say, are all my friends like me? Am I part of a tribe or am I really part of a community? And am I willing to have that hard conversation and to learn, to listen? Too many times white people have spoken to different people of color and to black people specifically and tried to poke holes in what they're saying. And they've tried to listen, but the whole time say, well, but, and then try to justify whatever they're going through, when really we probably should just listen, period. Listen for the sake of hearing, because if we listen and then hear what they're saying, sympathy should abound. I think it, it plays out in our marriages time and time again, but we're unwilling to let that transcend into our friendships, into people who disagree with us or have different experience than us. We, we have a call to listen. And I'm excited to see as the church steps in and says, we want to listen first, what can come of that? What kind of needs we'll be able to identify and what kind of steps we'll be able to develop? And who knows what God is up to right now, but it's huge. He's got a big, perfect plan. And we get to participate in that by listening first and foremost, and then saying, I'm going to lean into this. Com- this person is not like me. I can see that they're not like me. I can hear they're not like me. We, we, disagree on a lot, but that's going to shape me and that's going to draw me into something big. You know, it was Stephen Covey who said, we listen with the intent to reply, not with the intent to understand. And, you know, it's just, it's a different posture. If I listen to understand, I'm not thinking about how I'm going to respond to you, what I disagree with in terms of what you're saying. I just want to understand and let you have your full say. But if I listen with the intent to reply, 
then I'm always rehearsing what I want to say in response to what you've said. Yeah, classic. And it always gets us, we, the, the fruit is in there. Like, I have no clue what you just said because I've already planned, I'm going to say. No. Were you quoting someone or something? I don't know. <laughs> but that's our calling. And so as, as conversations go from here, from this place, from this conversation, would they be conversations about where do I need to listen more? Let's ask our friends earnestly or look around. Who do I need to seek out and just say, hey, I'm willing to admit that we're different can I learn about your situation? Just, I have no reply planned. You don't have to say anything when you're listening. That's the best part. Like, I don't have to sound smart. I don't even have to look smart. You just listen and consume the information. And that will breed understanding. So let's do that as a church. And, and if anyone's listening and they have questions, concerns, where do I start? How do I do that? We want to be a resource. We don't have answers, but we want to be a resource to help direct you toward answers. You can email info at springcreekchurch.org. You can comment on this post. You can call the church. We're, we're here. You can find us, and we want to help. Um, Patrick, Keith, thank you guys for joining me this week, and I'm looking forward to where this goes from here for sure.